Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of the Breaking the Guard podcast with your hosts Robert Drysdale and myself, David Avalon. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the return of the grappler, as we've seen. And this is a spoiler alert, which it shouldn't be at this point, but the UFC lightweight champion continues to be Khabib Nurmagomedov after his latest title defense against Dustin Poirier. And uh, we talk about how, for a while, there was the prototype of the striker wrestler that would just stand and bang, sprawl out takedowns, and avoid being on the ground. But now with someone like Khabib, we're seeing that a pure grap, well, just pretty much a pure grappling style is going to continue to work even in this day and age. So we talk about the ebb and flow of styles in MMA, how sometimes people think, oh, one thing's completely gone and will never come back. And I usually say that's when it's due for a comeback. But we talk about that. And we also talk about the relationships between coaches and athletes, performance anxiety, and the power of visualization. This is a very informative episode, I think, for all, whether you're just a regular student or a competitor. So uh, tune in to hear all about it. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, FFACoach.com. FFACoach.com is an MMA video membership site, which is going to take you from start to finish, whether you're a white belt or you're just new and you're getting started in the, the game or you're already a black belt instructor, but you need help in coming up with good curriculums. FFA stands for Freestyle Fighting Academy, which is my school that I opened up with my brother Marcos back in 2001 in Miami, Florida. And we actually made this website for our students at first because we wanted to give them an online curriculum they could follow when they weren't in class. And we also test there, so it was a good way for them to review before a test. But we saw the value in it for other people, so we opened it up. I think it was back like in 2007 or whatnot. And uh, it's the only site of its kind because there's a lot of jiu-jitsu or grappling-based curriculum sites, but I don't really know another one that does MMA exclusively. And we also run off the curriculum. So rather than being an encyclopedia just filled with a bunch of techniques and you have to try to figure out how to learn them, we actually give you structure for beginner students, intermediate students, and advanced students on a monthly basis. And it's the same curriculum that we teach out of our school in the Freestyle Fighting Academy. So it's like the next best thing to training with me or my brother in person is following the FFA Coach website. And again, our curriculums are also based on MMA, so they're separated by striking, wrestling, and grappling. So you can learn step-by-step the curriculum in a natural progression like you would if you were going to a school. And you could also skip around and search our video library with over 1,500 videos. And we update the library weekly with new videos from our classes or from sparring sessions that you get to tune into. So if you want to get started, you can join for just $1 and get a 30-day trial. And it's only $15 a month after that. So it's really affordable and a great resource for students and for coaches. If you need ideas of what to teach in class, it's a great resource. Again, just go to ffacoach.com to learn more about it. And again, that's Frank frankalphacoach.com. Hey, what's going on, everybody? David Avalon here with Robert Drysdale for the seventh episode of Breaking the Guard. What's going on, Rob? Not much. Same old Dave. Uh, lots of work, lots of teaching. 
Lots of traveling, living the living the life. Yeah, you were just in Chicago. Right? I was in Chicago. We just got back. Got two seminars seminars out there with uh, Dan Hart and Comprito. Nice. Uh, Dan like trains with me out here in Vegas, and uh, you know he's got a school in Chicago, but he comes to Vegas all the time to train with me. And Chiquito Comprito's like a old friend of mine, old training partner. We go way back. It's nice to see him. Oh, he's all, nice I think a uh, uh, mutual friend Ron Jarman was there too, right? Yes, Ron yeah. was there. That's right. Ron was there. <laughs> Costa Rica, Ron. That guy. Smartest guy in jiu-jitsu. He's got it all figured out. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I know we wanted to take some time today to talk about uh, the UFC that just passed, in particular with Khabib Nurmagomedov. Got that pronounced right? That was right. really well, good, man. <laughs> I, 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 I know it's not Khabib. We say it, it's like Khabib. Yeah, like yeah, the yeah. KH is like, they're like, an, like, a, like a French R, you know? Yeah. But uh, the, the, the surname, man, you killed it. I'm like Nur, Nurmagomedov. Is Nurmagomedov, that yeah. Yeah. And then Dustin Poirier, uh, spoiler if you haven't seen it, it's coming in three, two, one. Khabib won again, rear naked choke or, or short choke, I think, right? Yeah. It, was, it was a short choke, uh, third round, and once again another dominant victory where he just pretty much had his way. And this is gonna be, I know, I, I mean, if you've been listening to our podcast for a while, if you like listening to me commentate, and I say this a lot, but I'm such a big fan of wrestling for fighting in general. Uh, not just grappling. I think that's like the key decisive factor in so many grappling matches these days. You know, there's this hyper focus on these things. And to me, like, if you have a really dominant wrestling game and a solid back attack, that's those are the two most important things. You know, I think for MMA, even for ADCC, good. I mean, yeah, if I had to pick two skill sets to be incredible at, I'd be like takedowns and back attack. Everything else, I feel you can go without. Not that they're not important, but like guys like Khabib, they keep. Um, they, I think they reinforce that because he's got that. It's a style that was, to some extent, almost like dead in MMA. Yeah, you know, and he brought it back. And we're gonna have, have, have some theories why it died out. And then you know, maybe you can jump in and like you know give your, your positions. But I think that um, it has to do with the fact that you know you either had these BGJ guys who sucked at wrestling, or you had these wrestlers who sucked on the ground. Yeah. And when I mean sucked, okay, you can hold top position, close guard, doing this right here, like some bullshit punches, but. That's not very efficient in ground game. Like the very few of them were actually looking to pass and finish. So you either have one or the other, and rarely do you have guys that actually do both. You know, I think that's why Khabib itself. Yeah, no, Khabib is does he have a sambo background? I'm not sure. If I wanna say yes. I think combat yeah. sambo. Uh, I mean, everyone in Dagestan wrestles. If you don't wrestle there, yes, yeah, you okay. probably have no friends. Yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing, like, I think in Brazil, if you don't play soccer, you don't have a childhood. Like, you don't have friends. No one talks to you, you know? Imagine in Dagestan, it'll be similar. If you don't wrestle, it's like, what do you do then? Yeah. You know, so everyone wrestles there. But I, I remember, like, one of the first time I've heard of Khabib, he was, uh, he went to UFC weigh-ins, and he had a T-shirt on that said, if Sambo were easy, it would be called Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> Unless you remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That went viral. Real provocative. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, I mean, he's making it work. And like you said, he's got a good mix of ground skills. Ironically, not just... ironically it went with chokes, and that's, uh, chokes are illegal in some but Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That, choking. That's yeah. fine. No, he's the, uh, I think they had a clip of him tapping out uh, Leo Vera with that Darce choke in training. Yeah. You know? And they were making a big deal of that, too. Like, yeah. He's obviously very good on the ground, and well, like Leo's like forty plus now. It's not, yeah, it's not course, the same. It's, it's, it's not competition. Training it's, is yeah, training. Yeah. Like they're very different things. But like no doubt, he's he's a very skilled grappler. Yeah, and uh, I I kind of like this because for, you know it's been trending for a while, at least in MMA, where it's the striker wrestler. 
yeah. prototype, right? Where essentially you're just striking the whole time. Yeah. And you're using your wrestling just to negate the ground. The ground. Or yeah. to stay on top and do nothing, you exactly. know? like. And now we're yeah. seeing Khabib, at least in the lightweight era, he's bringing back just a pure grappling game plan. Using just enough striking to make you keep your hands up to set up his. You know, and, and you see the guys, I, and I've always said this. Like my, my a lot of my BJJ friends, they get they don't like it when I say this because there's always been this like, if you're if you go way back in the history of MMA, there's always been this rivalry between BJJ and wrestling. Now less so. But when I started training, like Mark Coleman versus BJJ, like remember those like those the Hammer House guys yeah. versus like the guys from Carlson Gracie. There's a huge rivalry there, right? And I. I'm more of like, I'm not one to pick teams. I'm more one to go like, what is actually happening? Right? What is happening here? And I think that wrestling is such a solid foundation for fighting. You know, not only, I mean, there's a number of factors that go into play. I think I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but one of them is the fact that there's a selection process that goes on in middle school, and high school in the United States, and then in college, you end up with the best athletes. Yeah. That selection process does not occur in BJJ the same way because it's all privately funded. So... I mean, if you, you're able to pay and you can stay in the gym long enough, you get good. But you don't always necessarily end up with the best athletes. On top of that, wrestling is a sport that is over is hundreds of years old. Yeah. It's just a very new sport in comparison. So methodology of training is like it's, it's still catching up, right? Um, but like when it comes to like MMA rules, like the way the judges score it, if you're on top, it doesn't really matter if you're actually doing much. The simple fact that you're on top, you're winning. Generally speaking, yeah. the guy on top is winning the fight. But that's such an enormous advantage because I know Joe Rogan has said this a million times, but you get to dictate where the fight takes place For if sure. you're the dominant wrestler. And that is such an important component of fighting because if your opponent sucks a strike and you can keep it up, and if he sucks on the ground, you can take him down. Exactly. So wrestling yeah. is like the bridge. It allows it is a you bridge. to, to it, it by itself, it doesn't really do that much, with the exception of getting a slam TKO, which is rare. Yeah. It does happen, but it's rare. Yeah. But for the most part, it connects to another art, right? Yeah. So essentially, your wrestling bridge is with your striking to yeah. keep you on your feet or with your grappling to take you yeah. to the ground. You know, so like the early UFCs, we saw wrestlers using ground and pound, and it wasn't really a clean ground and pound either, yeah. but it was just, that's all they had. You know? yeah. But now, like you're saying, we got Khabib, who's got the, the wrestling, and he's got the groundwork. Yeah. So he's got two solid game plans and just enough striking to keep himself safe on the feet. Yeah. Get him to the ground, you know. And I think the current rules for MMA, at least in the U.S., favor the what you were talking about, which is the takedown back attack yeah. style, right? Kind of like in the ADCC, how like we talked about that word. They, whenever they turtle, it's no points, so you're gonna find people turtling a lot, and you have it, a lot of back attacks as a consequence. Yeah. yeah, and the UFC is kind of similar in the sense that there's no um, when someone's turtled, you can't do soccer kicks. You know, so I think, and you can't hit the back of the head. So it's made to be a safer spot than being mounted. Yes. Right. And only that, people want to stand up yes. desperately. Like, and, and I, I call that, I call it the knucklehead MMA coaches. Like, oh, you hit the ground, stand back up, stand back up. Meaning like, don't learn jujitsu. You don't need any of this. All you got to do is stand back up and you're fine. And there are coaches whose jujitsu curriculum, if they had one, literally is just standing back up. Yeah. They don't even know how to do it. Like, I remember when I was training, man, when they try to stand back up, I'm like, oh, thank you. Yeah. Because that's when they're giving me the back. Yeah. You know, like Damian Maya made a career out of this. Like, yeah. if you look at the guys that Damian actually played guard with them, they did better than the guys who were trying to stand back up because those guys were getting their backs taken. Because, sure. like, if you know how to take the back and your opponent does not know how to stand back up, which most of them don't, they give the back a lot. So, for a grappler, it's like, Thank you so much. I think that's one reason why Khabib excels because he does that. He catches people on the fence on the back because they're trying to stand back up and they don't know. I mean, it's, I'm hesitant to say don't know how to do it, but like 
they're not doing it as efficiently as they could, is what I'm saying. There's a better way of standing back up for sure. without exposing the back. And that's where a lot of these guys, because they have that sort of mentality where they go, stand back up at any cost. Almost like panicking stand back up. Instead of going, how about you learn a little bit about the ground? Learn how to defend yourself. Learn how to attack off your back. And yeah. then standing back up is going to be a lot easier and safer. For sure. And very few people can say they, they know how to do that. MMA. No, you know, I try to... I mean, I've worked with a lot of people from all over the place, MMA gyms, and the groundwork is always disappointing to me. And I'm not talking about like regular people. I'm talking about UFC athletes, yeah. you know, people fighting Bellator, and I see the groundwork. I'm like, it it would be to me like a football player that doesn't know all the rules. Yeah. It's like, how are you doing this for a living yeah. as a professional, and you haven't taken the time to invest in yourself to learn all the positions? I'm not saying it's like you said, you don't yeah. have to be an expert everywhere. But, I mean, you should know it. Like Fundamentals, I, yeah. I shouldn't be able to go up to somebody who's a UFC fighter and show them a basic triangle escape and blow their mind away. No, no. It's, yeah. It gets worse, man. Like, I, I, I've worked with a lot of these guys, and, and it's so difficult to to work with someone. Like, and it goes back to the thing I was saying. Like, wrestling is such a dominant foundation. Such a good I, – I think – probably heresy in BJJ circles. But, like, I think wrestling is the m most important foundation when it comes from MMA. If you had to pick a skill set to have, like, as a foundation, I think it's wrestling. For sure. And then everything, like, and, and and I've always believed also that the best grapplers were going to be the wrestlers that took the time to learn jiu-jitsu, which you think would be the majority, but from my experience, are a very small minority. Yeah. They most of them. I, I think that there's there's an ego thing. Like I don't. There's I don't a need, lot of that. You know, I've worked with a lot of wrestlers that they just feel like they don't want to start over. Yeah. They don't want to be in the bottom of the totem pole and working their way up, yeah. and they feel like. I just got to be a little better wrestling and then I'll or, overcome. Or like the second they get out of a triangle or you can no longer tap from closed guard and their heads. This is the math and it's a very like it's they don't, I'm not think people think these things through. They make decisions and life decisions. They don't really think these things through. But if I'm on top of you in closed guard and you can't do anything to me, that means I beat you in a fight. If I can beat you in a fight, I have nothing to learn from you and therefore I don't know I don't need any jiu-jitsu. I'm good. Yeah. But if I can, get, it's kind of like the math in their head. Like I can get out of a triangle, or I'm not getting caught in a triangle. I'm good to go. I am ready for the UFC. Let me explain something. Just because you're getting out of a triangle doesn't say a thing about your jiu-jitsu skill set. <laughs> it means nothing. You know, it means that you're not getting caught in triangles and you're hard to tap. Well, congratulations. There's a million other things that you could be learning how to do that you don't necessarily learn how to do. Khabib, one back Khabib, he's one guy that actually put the time into assimilating aspects of submission wrestling i'm not going to call it some words whatever but submissions yeah. into his wrestling you see other guys that have done that successful i think ben Askren is one example he's someone that puts people away he's, there's there's an effort there like let's learn how to move forward i've worked with a lot of wrestlers in mma a lot of them just don't want to learn anything they maybe want to learn a kimura or a guillotine or something like that but it, it's hard to teach because there's there's resistance and i think that that what is behind that resistance it's pride more than anything it's, you know, it's like, I don't need, I don't need this. You know, I'm just going to stand back up. You can't hold me down. Therefore, I can beat you in a fight. You can't teach me. And I, I keep saying this, like the wrestlers that learn how to submit like, are the ones who excel. Yeah, most definitely. You know, and the, the funny thing is they are obviously very complimentary skills. But like you said, the ego gets in the way, especially if you're a really good wrestler, it tends to yeah. come with the ego. Yeah. You know, and then uh, it's hard for them to move around yeah. that. And because they're very athletic, they can succeed very well in training against most people, yeah. and then they have a false affirmation. Like, 
Yeah. Oh, like you said, I don't need to learn anything because I'm already yeah. destroying everybody in training. Yeah. Like, that's great. But when you fight a world-class guy, it's not going to be yeah, the same. And it's funny. Like, people, like, they, they set this ceiling for themselves. And I've always hated that. Like, oh, you know, if you can't sweep me, therefore, I don't need to. Like, how can you, you know, I, I, you can't teach me or, yeah, like, they, 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 they limit themselves. I'm good, right? I'm like, you have to raise the bar. If you want to be a UFC champion, the bar has got to be raised so high. Or if there's anyone in the gym, you're taking more than a minute to submit. You should be upset at yourself and going yeah. like, I got to push harder because you, you have to imagine the person you're going to confront in the cage is going to be so much better than you in every way, shape and form. So you're never really comfortable with your skill set. Oh, I'm good. I didn't get tapped today. And there are literally people who are completely okay. And I, this happens in jujitsu all the time. No one passed my guard today. Yeah. And they reached their comfort zone. They're happy. And that translates yeah. into their competition too. You see it all the time. If no one passes their guard, they're going, it's almost like that, that old Helio Gracie mindset. It goes, if I didn't get tapped, I didn't lose. No, you lost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got yeah. smashed. You just didn't get tapped. You still lost. But like people, they, they, they set the ceiling for themselves very, very low. And those are people that never really reach the next level because they're content with, with what they've achieved. Yeah, and I think uh, another aspect in the big picture is that when you compete, the idea is not to be better than everybody else, more so better than your last iteration of yourself, right? So if I'm the world champion and I've beaten everybody, the goal should be how much better can I get, Yeah. right? So like if I have holes in my game that I haven't filled yet, it's like let me start adding these on. I think that's why someone like George St. Pierre has remained on top for so long. Yeah. He was able to fight because he kept reinventing himself a little bit. Yeah. John Jones, kind of similar. He keeps adding parts to his game I, because if yeah. you stay the same forever, you're going to get beat because people, well, that, as, as a yeah. champion, you're in the top of the hill and everybody gets to see, oh, okay, he fights yeah. like this and when he was put in this situation, we can counter him here and they're going to start developing that game plan. So if you're stagnant, they will ultimately overcome you just by time. I call it the white belt mentality, the white belt mindset, you know, and when you walk in the gym, when you first start training, this, everyone's going to relate to this. You will like this. I don't know anything. Please teach me. Everyone, like, it could be another white belt with one stripe on his belt, and he's showing you something. You go, oh, okay, thank you. You know, and something happens, and the opposite should happen. Like, the more you train, the more humble you should become. Yes. Like, I think it should be a humbling experience to be aware of how little you know. So, as time goes by, you should know less and less. There was a minute there that as a blue belt, I thought I got it all. I got it. I got it. I got, like, three half guard sweeps, five <laughs> spider guard sweeps. I, mean, I thought I knew, like, I was so confident about it. But, like, today I feel, like, less confident because, like, man, there's so much that I don't know because what you should be doing is realizing how little you know, right? It's yeah. being, like, uh, amazed at how little you know. But, like, some people somewhere along the way, a lot of people, in fact, they lose that white belt mentality. And the result of that is that exactly what you're describing. They stop progressing. They stop learning. And as a champion, if you want – I always admire people like GSP because it's just one thing to be a champion. It's something very different to remain the champion for a long time because – where do you go from there? You've already, like, it's always like, it sounds like you're the second in the race. If you're behind someone, you can actually see the person right in front of them. You're chasing that person down. But once you're leading, what are you really looking forward to? Especially when you've finished that line many times already. You've yeah. been and how do you remain the champion for that long? Like, it's, it's an effort of humility and, and discipline and, and, and heart and meaning. That is much, much deeper than I think people realize and just being, oh, he's just winning. Like, it's easier to get the belt, in my opinion, than it is to keep it over the years. For sure. And that, you know, and statistically, we can yeah. see that. Because, yeah, because yeah. they don't hold on to the belt very long. For that. And I think something happens to their heart 
oh, yeah. once they're there. Like it's the motivation is not there anymore. It's something happens. And um, it goes back to what you're saying, but, like, but a guy like GS or anyone who remains a champion for a long time has to reinvent themselves. And that means they're always open to learning. Yeah. And I'm not, not on a superficial way, on a very deep way. Because like superficially, everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, thank you for showing me that. People can be humble superficially. But deep down, they're not really like, yeah, I got this. I'm, I don't need that stuff. You know, versus being, wow, how little I know. Yeah. And it definitely takes that to be able to stay on top. And again, you you always want to pe keep people on their heels. So every time you add a new skill set, it's like you just stretch the gap out. Because if you just stay there, people are climbing. So yeah. every time you learn a new skill, uh, keep moving up and, and keep pulling away from the crowd. But like you said, it takes a lot of motivation because most people, when you're a contender and your your goal is to be a champion, and you probably don't think that far ahead of that. Most yeah. people wouldn't. You know, I just want to be a champion. So you get the strap. Now you're like, oh, now what? Yeah. And then you, you kind of fade a little bit. I know like when I was younger, I had a goal. I was like 17. I wanted to bench 300 pounds. And I was like 180, right? And uh, bench, bench. And it took me like five, six months. And I hit it. Boom, I like, hit like 305. And you know what happened? I stopped lifting. Because <laughs> I, I didn't say anything else yeah. after that. You know, I was like, in my mind, that was such a far-fetched goal. Like, you're, you're a kid, bench 300 pounds. Once I bench, I'm like, oh, okay. And it's funny you say that. That's why people tell me they dream about being a jiu-jitsu world champion or UFC champion or whatever. And I'm like, don't be so limited. Yeah. And they look at me, isn't that the pinnacle? It's like, no, the pinnacle is yourself. How, where is, where, how much Dave could have, you don't know where your limit is. Exactly. And that's the real goal is not the medal because you, you it, thank you for bringing that in now. I never thought of it. Though, because I, I never cared about bench pressing. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but like, it, it does, it's, it's, it brings it to, a, in a very simple way, it describes something that's very meaningful about human nature. It's like how limited we, our ambition is sometimes. Yeah. You could have lifted 400 pounds, maybe more, had you had the ambition to do that. Correct. But once you set that bar, like, you know, it's not a low ceiling, not to say, but you set a limit to that ceiling, right? And then you're like, oh, and you stop lifting. And I think that happens to a lot of fighters. Like they, oh, yeah. It's because they're thinking, you know, and I, I try to teach people and I try to behave like this and I... I try to teach them to set, like, so when I say the sky's the limit, as in, like, there is no limit. You know, Correct. it's infinite. Like, don't aim. The, 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 the competition should be against yourself and your own limitations yeah. versus, you know, beating a number or winning a belt. Yeah, because yeah, exactly. If you're just trying to be better than yourself, you're never done. There's yeah. always room to work, Improving. you know. So that's, I think, the safest way of doing it. You know, I, I get for some people, it's easier to have a tangible goal, though, right? Which, that's why I think becoming a champion is physical you know exactly what it yeah. requires to be but like you said to say make you the best version of yourself that's not really known yeah. right like because you said that guy bench 305 maybe i could have done 325 350 360 but i didn't know that again low limit and like the things you say to yourself are so important you yeah. know like they trump just about everything else yeah. i know uh a similar thing i told myself once I uh, had just, it was ADCC 2009, I got the bronze, I fought Cyborg in the absolute division, beat him in double overtime, and my next match was with Gunnar Nelson. And they gave us no break, you know, divisions. <laughs> like, I walked off the mat with Cyborg, right onto the mat with, with, uh, with Gunny, and I was exhausted. So I told myself before the match, whatever happens, I'm not going to let this match go into overtime. I'm going to finish it in regulation. Yeah. And I was right, except I was the one that got finished. 
(laughs) (laughs) And the way it happened, I think it was a self-sabotage. Because it was 30 seconds left on the clock. It was draw. Yeah. You know, he was out hustling me, but he wasn't able to score. I had a couple close submission attempts. I wasn't able to finish. He shot a sprawl. I mean, he shot in on me. I sprawled. And then I went for a very bad attempt at a Kimura. Like, I just went, and I just flopped right over to my back. And I forgot about the minus point. So my buddy yells at me, minus point. So I turtled, but it was such a slow turtling. They gave it to Well, no, no, he didn't get the points, but he got my back immediately. And he sunk a rear naked choke instantaneously. Well, you were probably exhausted at that point, too. But, like, I went so hard to try to finish without being cautious, you know, because I had put this condition on myself. The match has to finish. Uh, I should have specified that I have to win. (laughs) Not that the match doesn't go into overtime, that I win the match, you know. Um so, yeah, I always tell people that like, you got to be careful what you tell yourself because your yeah. mind takes instructions I, quite I call literally. It programming. That's yeah. what I call myself. The conversations I have with myself, they're programming because it, it, they, they, they set the narrative of how you see yourself and how you see the world. And that right there will be the guiding factor in most of your actions moving forward because the truth is you don't think all your decisions, the things you say and do, a lot of them are like some, some sort of autopilot. Like your mind just kind of does its thing, right? Yeah. Like when you're thinking of the thoughts, like how you see yourself on the mat and how you see yourself behave in front of people and how you see the world, these thoughts are, they're really programming your, your, your behavior for the future. So like, it's, it's kind of cliche to say this, but like, you have to guide, like really guard your thoughts. Of course. Like yeah. the, how, what the things you're saying, the thinking of that's who you are. Like that's who you become, you know? And I, I had a student of mine, I might've told you this story already, but Forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I had a student of mine in Brazil. He was very uh, good in the gym. Like, he'd go toe-to-toe with, like, the best of gym, people in the gym. Like, you toe-to-toe with, like, me and Lucas Lecce, the best guys in the gym back in the day. And when it came to competing, like, if he took third, it was, like, a miracle. Everyone was winning, but he was always, like, losing first, second fight. Like, if he took third, it was, like, whoa, you know, it was, like, a big deal. And he just never really pulled it off, and I couldn't quite understand why. And one day I sat him down, and I go, what what's happening, man? Like what's because I was still becoming more aware of this, like the the thought process prior yes. to matches, right? I was becoming more aware of it. And he goes, oh, "How do you see yourself?" I ask him. "How do you see yourself before competition?" And he's going like, "What do you mean? Like, well, what's going on? Like, when you imagine the fight, what's happening?" And he goes, "Oh, you know, like the guy takes me down and like passes my guard, and then he mounts me, and then I turtle, and then he gets my back and finishes me. Like, stop. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you're the programmer, man. Like, yeah. you are the, the 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 you're writing code." When you're thinking of jujitsu, that's like that. Look at it from now on. Look at it that way. You are writing code. Uh, if that code you are writing is the code of you, like not being able to stop a takedown, guess what's going to happen? When that autopilot is turned on, yeah, you know, you're not you're going to be unable to stop that takedown. And and so I have a thing I do. Like this is some advice, people. Maybe you do the same. I always win in my head. I never allow myself to lose in my mind. And the mind is something so interesting because if you go, don't think of pink elephants, you just did. Like it's so, you have to stop yourself from having that negative thought. And the way I'll do it, if I ever catch myself going down that rabbit hole where like I'm going negative in any way, shape or form, I'll just say like, I'll I'll say stop. And I'll just try to recorrect my, I'll actually think the word stop or it could be something. I have a friend of mine, Joey Varner, he says delete, delete. And he'll just like try to redirect that 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 thought into something. And I think that 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 hard stop is something I don't know. It works for me because if I see myself with well, this guy's taking me now, I say stop, and then I'll just like 
go back to where I'm sprawling, getting his back and choking him out. And I think that a lot of people are losing. It has to do with how they're programming their minds prior to competition. For sure. You know, and this is something that I was fortunate. I was able to learn early uh, in my sporting career. When I was in high school, I think I told you I had a book, Wrestle to Win. And yeah. one of the main concepts in there was visualization, right? Like every world-class athlete that I know uses it. What you're yeah. describing is, of course, visualization, which is essentially you're creating a false memory, right? False. I like that. So the idea is, like I always tell people, like, oh, you know, did you train yesterday? And they're like, yeah. How do you, how can you prove it? Use the memory, right? Yeah. So what if we're able to construct a memory and just implant it? Yeah. Now, what would be the difference? Well, I mean, besides the physical aspect of moving around, mentally it would be the same. It would be the same. Right? So that's the idea behind visualization is to try to implant those memories like matrix style, you know? Now the key, um, just like in the matrix, is that it has to be done with as much detail as possible and be believable. Like if I have a visualization like, oh, I'm going to train with you and then I'm going to grab him by the pinky finger and then like, Tom and Jerry him around. Yeah. It's like, and it rejected, right? Like that's not ever happened. Yeah. It's never going to happen, right? But like if I construct my visualization in a believable way to myself, which is relative, of course, depending on your level of confidence, then it, could, it has a chance of being accepted, right? Yeah. To your subconscious. Like, okay, yeah. this is something that could happen yeah. or maybe it already has happened. Yeah. Like whenever I would go into compete, I would always try to get to the venue early so I can scout out how the place is, where I'm going to warm up, where am yeah. I sleeping, where's the bathroom, where I yeah. go there, the music I'll be listening to, the people I'm hanging out with, the clothes I'm yeah. wearing. I try to have everything plotted already because that's going to be part of my visualization. Yeah. So when I do that, it's, it's not familiar. Exactly. And that's it one of the things familiar. that... I've been here before. Yeah. I've done this before. Exactly. I already finished this guy. I swear, I swear like people like... Ask me like I get this question all the time. So, like I don't even like talking about because I get that question so much. But like, oh, was it like finishing Marcelo Garcia, right? And I go in my head, I finished him a hundred times, like an hour before. before. <laughs> like I was finishing my head so many times. Like, and I, I truly believe that these 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 visualization drills, like they, I don't, I never like to drill. People like drilling. Like I see some of the repetition people do. Like some of it is pointless. Some of it is useful. Some of it is pointless to me. It depends on what you mean by drilling. But I never did that. Like I never, no one ever taught me the Darsh or the guillotine. I just like. It's like like Neo, I see it. I'm like, oh, next time someone sticks their neck out there, I'm going to go for it. But a good friend of mine, Joey Varner, same guy, because we were having this conversation years ago, and he looked at, like, think of the mind as like a football field, right? If you walk that same path over and over and over across, like a straight line or a zigzag or whatever, what happens to the grass? It turns into a trail, right? And you keep walking that path over and over and over, it turns into a trail. What happens if you stop walking that path? The grass grows back, right? So that's how you should think of the mind as something that if you're reinforcing certain thoughts, that's going to turn into a trail and eventually into a road. So I would see myself like going for certain moves over and over. And over. This helped me a lot in my fights too, because if I knew my opponent, I knew he knew me and I know what his game plan is and you know what my game plan is. I know where no man's land is. That's what I call it. The middle ground where the fight takes place, right? Where our strengths meet. Once I know where no man's land is, I can start visualizing strategies that will be effective in no man's land, you know? So now I can go, okay, this is what Dave's going to be trying to do to me. This is what I have to do to counter. And this is the counter to the counter. So I visualize every single likely scenario in no man's land a million times in my head. When the time comes, it's not a trail. It's a road. Yes. And there's no hesitation, you know? So um, 
I think that's probably the most important aspect of fighting and the least talked about because it's not simple. Like, and you can't really, I mean, how do you teach it? Like it's, you can talk about it, but you can't, you have to experience. It's hard to explain. Well, I think it's one of those things that people think fighting is a very, from the outside, like we we talk, you remember, I think we talked about football players at one point, like people assume a football player already has athletic ability. They're strong or they can fight. Because people from the outside think fighting is about physicality. But really, you know, when you're in the game a lot, you realize it's more mental than anything else. And we talked a little bit about the will to win and all that. But nobody likes putting in that mental work. Yeah. Right? Like, um, we do it in our practices for our fighters. And we'll do it for our, our students at my gym every so often. We'll do, like, 15 minutes. Or we'll just go through, like, uh, mental exercises and whatnot. But most people have a hard time dealing with those. They, like, they kind of already tune out. They like learning the flying arm bar or doing like sparring and stuff. But when you actually tell them, hey, put in the mental work, take like 30 minutes out of every day and get a journal and write down affirmations it's or hard. do like your game plans or do, you know, a visualization. Be like, uh, that's like it's doing, so, it's like, it's, it's like doing homework. Like, it's, eh. Yeah, it's so, it's so hard, easy to get distracted too. This is how it worked for me at least. Like if I'm not, I'm very disciplined in some ways and very undisciplined in others. If you told me, Rob, you're going to sit down from 2 to 2, 2.30 and do exactly what you described, I'd be horrible at it. But I get in my modes where like sometimes it just comes to me. Sometimes when I'm eating, sometimes when I'm like, before I go to bed, I'll be in the shower and boom, I start thinking about jujitsu, right? And then I go into this, these rabbit holes, man, like I'm gone. Like I'm not on planet Earth anymore. Yeah. Like I'm so <laughs> immersed in what I'm doing. And it's real, man. Like I've been like visualizing tournaments. I was on the verge of tears of celebrate i was so happy it's like fuck i'm just like because like i'm experiencing no, that like sure. I, I see it i can feel myself having my hand raised and when you can do you that know? that shows that you've made a strong believable yes memory, right yes. like i tell people like when i do a visualization my heart starts racing yeah right that means my mind thinks it's real yeah because if it didn't it wouldn't my, my the body wouldn't respond right yeah but like I'm seeing a match where adrenaline running. goes up, yeah, my heart's pumping. I yeah. can feel like boom, 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 boom. I'm like, okay, yeah. like, this is uh, yeah. it's legit. I like the yeah. believable memory. I love that. I, I love. That. I'm gonna steal that that the believable memory because yeah. And then when the time comes, there's no hesitation. And not only that, like I've been here. Yeah. That medal's already mine. Like I've been to tournaments where like I walk in and I go, I'm just going. It's just protocol. Yeah. This is just like you know. I I, I in my mind I've already won. Like the doubt was entirely removed. And I think. Yeah, the visualization is a big part of that. Yeah, and with the with that analogy I'll steal from you is the trails, right? Yeah. Because that's a very good point. It's not just that's, about that's doing Joy, it. I'll, Joey Varner, he's a good friend of mine. I hope he watches Okay, this. Yeah, thank you, Joey. That was his. Yeah, yeah, because that it's not just doing it once, right? It's kind of like I tell people who read books. Like, you don't read a book just once and think you've learned it. you got to read it a bunch of times. And that's why people read the Bible Every Always Sunday or every day, yeah. like you're, you're never done learning the lesson in a, in, a, in a book that big. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Similarly, with a visualization, it's, it's not just once. It's not like okay, I did one visualization complete. No, it's over and Repetition. over and over. And like Repetition. you said, now you're making that road. Yeah, yeah. So that that's the thing, you know. Like, and the idea to me is to go out and compete to gain experience yeah. is very difficult and dangerous. Right? Like every time you go in a cage, it's a good chance you're going to get messed up. Yeah. Right. But if I can go in the cage in my mind without taking any physical damage, and I, I'm not going to say you get the same or the equal benefit of stepping in the cage, but you get some. Maybe instead of 100% of the benefit of experience of walking in there for real, maybe it's like 20%. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, that's 20% you wouldn't have got otherwise. Yeah. And I could do that a hundred times. I could do that every day. And you, you know? can do it when you're exhausted and overtrained. Too. Yes. That's the other thing. Like when I had like, I'm overtrained, like in my mind, I was training. I was just doing the mental training you were describing, mm -hmm. like the homework of thinking, the thought process of like, of, of, of fighting and, you know, going through the motions. And to me, that was such a huge aspect of preparing myself. Cause I've always been like, I've suffered from fight anxiety my whole life. Right. So it was like, I couldn't just compete and like, Oh, I'm just going to compete. No big deal. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to compete. Yeah. It was a big deal, man. <laughs> you know? And I think sometimes I even harm my career cause I was like so hard on myself. But you know, I think that, that, that the visualization kind of made it easier because sure. I've done through like the, for the, the, the bath, the walk to the bathroom you're describing, I'd literally visualize that. Because these yeah. are things you're going to be going through when you go to the tournament, the warming exactly. up, you know, the weighing in. I'd visualize all this because what that would do is like when the time comes, you're familiar with the situation. There's nothing new. It blows my mind. Like a lot of my friends would do this. I'll never understand this. You walk up to them the day of the tournament, they go, I ask them like, so who's in your bracket? And they go, oh, I didn't look. I have no idea. I'm like, what? <laughs> to me, that's so brave and stupid at the same time. It's yeah. Like, the combination of incredibly courageous and incredibly stupid. It's the equivalent of like walking into like a fight with your hands down kind of thing. You know, it's like, what? You have no idea who you're going against. I would study my opponents like, I mean, as much as I would, as much information as I could get on them. Like, sure. I'd be terrified of stepping in there not knowing what I'm up against. I know some people have different schools of thought. Like some people are like, like, oh, I won't study video because I don't want to psych myself out. And then other people are like, I'm going to study everything and I'm going to create a game plan specifically for this guy. I'm kind of leaning towards that side, but not so far in that I can't expect that the last version of you is going to be the one I'm going to fight. Yeah. Because and if you, if I only make a game plan based on that and you come out different, I'm screwed now. Because yeah. I prepare for something that it's not there. But at the same time, not being aware of the dangers of something you're going to face is silly. Like there's no war in the history of man that. The other side didn't have spies. Yeah, of course. That's, <laughs> you need the intel. You need to know what you're dealing that's with. That's as important yeah. as warfare itself yeah. as the intelligence. If you read like the, the art of war, it's all about spies. It's all intelligence. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, like you need to know, know what's going enemy. on. Yeah. So like, yeah, you, to not look at the other side of the bracket and figure out what your possible matchups are, to me, it's being lazy. I I, I, it is lazy. And yeah. I, I would say this, like, first of all, I never watch highlights. That's my advice. Never watch highlights because highlights are not real. Highlight is a highlight. It's edited. It is not real. Ignore highlights. Watch tape on your opponents, you know, but I wouldn't do it too close to the competition. I'd do it maybe beginning of camp if it made yes, yes, like yes. the, you know, and then you kind of like, okay, watch it once and you have an idea of what's coming because you can't, I mean, you can study in detail. Some people do that, I respect that, but like what I would do is like I'd do a little bit in the beginning and then okay, this guy's got a really good spider guard. If he gets the lasso guard, I'm screwed. Or he's got really good foot locks, you know, hide my feet the whole time. And the rest of preparation was like based off of my, my knowledge of where no man's land was going to be, right? But you're right. Like if you keep watching too much, you can turn, you know, like an average fighter yeah. into a titan all of a sudden. Like I remember like some of the guys, like, I watch a highlight. I shouldn't have, but like I've seen highlights. I'm like, whoa, this guy's such a monster. And then I watched the actual footage of him fighting. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Drastically different. You know what the perfect point. analogy is for people? Yeah. Movie trailer. Yeah. You've never seen a crappy movie trailer. They're all amazing. amazing. Like, oh my God, this yeah. is the best movie ever. Yeah. But you realize those are like all the best moments of the movie yeah. in one minute. Yeah. That's like 90 minutes long. And you're like, oh, it's not really that amazing. Yeah. It was just this all the time. clip. You know, so yeah, time. highlights are the same, same way. You know, like you can't psych yourself out uh, in, in 
only watching the amazing stuff he does. Like for me, I don't usually watch any matches I could watch with a guy. Yeah. But like you said, like once. And just, okay, I know, and I might take notes. Okay, he's got good, you know, inside heel hook, uh, weak takedown defense, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And then my coach could really dig deep if he needs to, right? Like, okay, he's going to then make that analysis. All right, this is where you're weak at and he's strong that he's going to try to exploit and bring yeah. you there, you know, whereas you're going to need to pull him into this part of your game, you know. But, like, I, I think a lot of the watching tape, too, comes down to your coach. And that's different for BJJ and MMA before every BJJ practitioner out there starts thinking that his coach <laughs> is supposed to stop his life. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I get that sometimes. I kid you not, man. Like, you know, people like drop me like, hey, can you watch, you know, like 50 fights of my five-year-old son at Naga? I'm like, bro, I got a lot. I can't. You know, and it's different because in MMA you have a guy who's a professional should be paying you well. Most of them don't. But, like, they should be paying you well. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's normal for you to put the time into them preparing for a professional fight in the UFC, right? For sure. If you're a BJJ coach and you have 100 plus 200 students, it is not realistic for you to give them that kind of individual attention no. because you have so many A and B. We don't want to hear this, but, like, you're not paying them that much. You're paying 100 exactly. plus. Like, it's, like, it's not real. Dude, I'm not going to give you 50 hours a week. When you're paying me a hundred bucks a month, it's just not realistic. Yeah. Um, get a private if you really want that kind exactly. of extra attention. But like your coach is the one that should be ideally, you know, figuring out like the game plan for you and like at least communicating. Like I'm really invested in Max. Yeah. Um, probably bring him on the podcast sometime. Like it is a maker because I really believe in the kid. But like you know, we communicate. Like we talk strategy and we visualize fights. It's there's a there's a dialogue between us when preparing him for fights, you know, it's not something I don't dictate, you know, I listed him and I know we have similar vision and that's why it works. And I think that's a good relationship between a coach and a fighter. It's just like the, that communication that, that functions like, you know, feedback, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not dictatorial in a lot of ways, but it is me coaching him based off of his feedback of how he's, you know, what is happening on the ground, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. You know, cause I mean, ultimately, even when you're coaching the, let's say a fighter in the cage, Everything you're telling them are suggestions, you know. Usually they're good at suggestions, yeah. but uh, the fighter is going to have the last say. In it, yes, you know what I mean? so, and that is a huge problem. And we, I think we talked about this a little bit, but like that is the most odd things in MMA to me. In professional sports is that the fighter dictates to the coach what's happening. <laughs> it really is what's happening. But yeah, it yeah. depends on what you got. Like I've had some athletes, uh, they don't listen to anything. Yeah. And uh, it's super frustrating as a coach. And you can't help them. Because you can't help them. You know, and like, I tell them it's harder to be a coach than a fighter. Because fighting, you just, you get to do it. You're in there. You don't have to think about anything. You just flow it, you know. But as a coach, you're like, you're invested in this guy. You don't want him to get hurt. You want him to win. And you're trying to give him the advice that you believe is going to make him win. And when they're just totally dismissive or they just can't hear you, they got their blinders on. It's like, oh, man, I just got to cross my fingers. And yeah. <laughs> it's worked I, out. And, and it's difficult because... I, I was just talking to this about with Max the other day. Like, if I think, okay, so imagine you're in college and you're wrestling in college, right? Does the wrestling coach care that your girlfriend doesn't like him? It's like, no. Does he care if you don't feel like training today? Does he care that you don't like the drill? Does he care that you don't want to work on singles? Yeah. <laughs> like, all these things. It's like, does he care that you don't want to jog or do conditioning? It's like, no, it tells you to do it. Just shut the fuck up, basically. Right, and if you don't like that, you get off the wrestling team. They'll kick you off the team, right? Yeah. Because the coach is paid by the university, but because the coach in MMA is paid by the fighter, the fighter 
like the wife has to like you. I'm not making this shit up, but this is important yeah, stuff. Like I'm serious. I've seen this happen more times than I can count. If yeah. the wife doesn't like you, you're done. Like I'm saying stuff like it shouldn't matter, like what the wife thinks, but like if she doesn't like you, it's it's over. And I've seen so many like and fighters because of this dynamic, because they hold all the power, fighters tend to surround themselves with yes man, which is you know very damaging to themselves. Yeah. Because the yes man doesn't want to lose his job. So whatever you say, boss, and as a result, they bite their tongue if they see something. You know, and I've had a really hard time coaching people because I'm not a yes man. Yeah. Like, I'm going to tell you what I think, and I, I'm very outspoken in this regard. Like, I think there's something wrong. I'm going to say it. I don't, I don't care about your feelings so much. I care about you winning. Yeah. You know, so it's, 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 a, it's a difficult thing to do for, for, for a coach sometimes. To me, the coaching relationship essentially is a, it's a mentorship, right? Now, if you're going to be mentored by somebody, are you going to tell them how to mentor you? That seems foolish. Yeah. You don't know. That's why you're going to him. <laughs> right? Yeah. It would be like it if is. I it's went. It's a contradiction in terms when you think about it. You yeah. tell the coach how he wants him coaching you. Yeah. Like if I went to, like if you're, you know, uh, if you're in university, you don't tell your professor, hey, professor, you need to show it like this. It's like, <laughs> what? Get out of the class. You're done. <laughs> right? Like, no, it doesn't work that but, way. So but, when you're yeah. getting coached, yeah. the whole thing is you have to have faith. Like, if you don't believe in your coach, you're already with the wrong guy. You should find a new one. Find a new yeah, one, right? You should one. be with somebody that you believe it has your best interests and they know what they're talking about. So when they tell you something, like they say jump, you jump. That's the relation. That's the ideal relationship for their coach or for anybody who's mentoring you. Because, you know, I've been in several mentorship relationships, uh, mentee, mentor, and if I'm not doing everything that guy is telling me to do, they quickly tune out. Yeah. You know, because they're like, well, I'm not going to make much headway with you because you already think you know better than me. Why, why, you're, why are you paying me to mention? Here, here's but, the shitty thing about MMA, though, Dave. It's because a lot of these coaches are dependent on a salary. They can't afford to turn their backs. Yes. A wrestling coach in college can go F off. Yeah. If you're a wrestling, if you're a struggling coach in Las Vegas, Nevada, or wherever you coach, and the fighter tells you, I want you to hold path like this, you got to go, because he's a customer, like he's paying for a service in reality. So, you know, you have, you have to cater to the customer. So it is a very, and I think, I don't think MMA fighters, or professional fighters in general, realize how much they are hurting themselves Correct. by allowing this dynamic to take place. And that's one reason I moved away. I'm just getting back into it. But like I come into MMA now as a coach with a very different mindset. I don't care if you like my training or not. If you don't, there's the door. And I think that once, because I'm not dependent on that money to pay, pay my bills. Yeah. So it's a very different dynamic that's been established. So now it's like, oh, it is what it is. If you don't like it, there you go. And I think that is the correct approach. Correct. Because now yeah. I will guide you as a mentor, as a coach. And as you listen to me, I know how far you can make it, right? Um, and I'll, I mean, I've been around a lot of these MMA camps. That is not the dynamic in MMA gym. It is a fighter bossing the coaches around. Yeah. And it's a, like you said, just because the way the finances work, it's made a false illusion of where the power is supposed yeah. to reside, right? Yeah. Like, to me, the coach is the, is the one with the power here. Yeah. But you want it that way because he's the one with the knowledge yeah. and the experience. And that's why, like, you know, that's rehashing the point. And, and then BJJ is the same thing, too, because, like, sometimes, like, it, it's interesting because there's a massive difference between BJJ and, and Brazil and the U.S. And it has to do with money. In Brazil, BJJ is not profitable. It's so competitive. There are so many people teaching. Every purple belt starts teaching in Brazil, right? Because everyone needs to make money. So as a result, you have 20 students. Everyone's got 20 students. No one's got 50. So I, I mean, I was ADCC champion in Brazil. I beat the JF4 champion. And I had like 
maybe 20 to 30 students. I'm not making this up. That yeah, would, it's, yeah. it's when you think about it, it's crazy, you know, paying me the equivalent of like $20, $30 a month, you know? So <laughs> I'm like nice. basically making $500 a month. I'm ADCC champion. I'm like, this is ridiculous. But as a result, because there's no money, I kind of didn't, if someone didn't like training, like you didn't listen to me, I'd kick because it didn't make a difference. Yeah. It's so little. <laughs> but in the U.S., it's so, it's, it's, it's crazy how much the money influences the dynamics of the gym because these, these guys come in and, you know, you're dependent on their money to keep up, you know, hey, we're in a big place. You got all these bills now. That's the other thing, Brazil is very cheap to run a gym too. Like here it's a far more expensive, bigger investment. You sign a lease. Yeah. You have all these responsibilities. So all of a sudden, like what the student thinks really, really matters because you need that to pay the bills. Yeah. And as a result, you get these guys that go, oh, I think it's time for me to get promoted. Now, they don't say it. No one says it. Parents do sometimes. But like for the most part, the white belt doesn't walk up to you and go, coach, promote me to blue belt. But they'll give you hints that they feel they are deserving and ready. And a lot of coaches cater to that. And like there's pressure that doesn't exist when the, that, 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 that sort of money dynamic doesn't exist. Whereas what you, I want to say as a coach is like, in Brazil, you have this thing, like, if you ask for a belt in any way, shape, or form, your punishment was to stay an extra year on the current belt. We had that policy. People knew never to talk about belts. You never imply that you're ready for a new belt, you know, because they knew it was going to get punished. Like, if you do that in the U.S., like, you lose a student. Yeah. So coaches have to worry about these things if you're a school owner. Uh, it's, I think it's important to find a balance as a business owner because I call them overlapping hierarchies. That's where I refer to gyms in, in, in the U.S., most of the world, in fact, like anywhere where gyms are something profitable, what's going to happen is you have the business hierarchy. There's a chain of command, gym owner, manager, employees, whatever. And then you have the mat hierarchy, which is not always the same. And they're different morals, too, because on the mat, it's all about discipline and commitment and listening to your coach. Whereas if you're running the business, it's all about growing membership. Yeah, yeah. So there's conflicting moralities there, too. And you have to juggle all this as a gym owner. And it is very difficult to do. I think I do a good job. <laughs> but like I'm aware of these things because as a business owner, of course, you want to increase your membership at any cost. And then as a jiu-jitsu aficionado, you want to go, you're not deserving of a bulldog. I don't care. So my advice to gym owners in this regard is to change the create a culture in the gym where they understand that they are paying for a service, but you, they, you are still the master and the leader in that, 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 that place. Like, it's not something, you're not, you're not a customer as in like you walk in Walmart and you can yell at the manager. Yeah, you know, but like, that's Exactly. You're not, you're not, <laughs> it's not, it's okay. We're a business, but this is not like, you know, you're not walking into Target and like I demand or you know, you shut up. You don't demand anything. I'm still the boss here. And you have to, you know, balance these things out. And it's, it's not an easy thing to do. But it has to do with the culture. That would be my advice. Yeah. No, 100%. And, uh, Kind of veered a little bit away from the the, the Khabib conversation. I know we started talking about Khabib. We ended up talking about like a million other things. But that's how my conversations with I think that's what the, the idea yeah. of a podcast came from. Yeah. Because me and Dave would be like you know chatting about whatever, and we end up talking about like fifty different topics in one hour. I'm like, dude, we should just record this. That's literally what the idea. Because I never thought about having a podcast. It was just like I had no ambition to have one. You know, I'm, I don't know if you ever did, but. It was us just bullshitting. It was like, yeah. we go all over the place. Maybe some people want to listen. So. For sure. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> round we it back up to, to Khabib. Back because to Khabib. I, I want to talk about the grappling game yeah. plan in particular. Because I think it's – I've always said this. I always told my fighters, for me, the best place to be in a fight is on top. Right? I agree. Because it's a one-sided exchange. Right? 
you know, I think I've said this before, but we have two elite strikers and they're, and they're both fighting each other. They're both going to get hit. Even if one's way better than the other one, it's part of the striking game. It's an exchange. Whereas when you're on the ground and you're on top, it's a one-sided exchange. I'm throwing punches from top. You're not really doing any damage from the bottom, barring going for a submission hold or some sort. So like for me, statistically, I want to be on top as much time as possible so I'm in a position where I can't take that much physical damage, but I can deliver yeah. a lot of damage. And to top it off, the rules also reward that style of game, right? Like if you see a close round and someone scores a takedown, oh, easy. And, and it's yeah. funny you say that because I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Top is dominant. I've always said this is one reason why like, I've always been in favor of point systems because they favor top position. And um, at the same time, some of the judges are so uneducated. And this drives me crazy about commissions is that these judges have, are so uneducated when it comes to fighting. It blows my mind to get that job. But for, there are times, it doesn't happen very often, where the guy on bottom is beating the crap out of the guy yes, on top. Yes, it does. And then they like, oh, nope, guy on top. It's like, what damage was the criteria? And I actually heard a, a, a UFC, a commission judge say this. He taught a seminar at Extreme Couture years ago. I remember his name. And he was explaining to the fighters how they judge, right? And I asked the question, well, what about near submissions? And he goes, what about them? Do they count as much as a near knockout when it comes to the judging? And they laughed. No, no. The whole room laughed at me like I'm crazy. I'm, like, I'm looking at things from a practical perspective. I don't care which one is more impressive. Yeah. That's for pro wrestling. Aesthetics is for pro wrestling. MMA is about efficiency. If I almost choked you, which means I could have killed you had I gotten that choked, yeah. choke, or, and, and you almost knocked me out, from the grand scheme of things, they're both almost finishing the fight. They should be equally rewarded. The judge like look at me like I'm crazy, and he goes basically, no. If you score a beautiful takedown, that is worth more in the judge's eyes than a near submission, which is insane to me. Unless the near the, 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 the takedown almost knocks him out, because I like, spike him on. He said, in that case, it'd be worth as much as a near submission or near knockout because you almost finished the fight. But if you just hit like a single, like you run the pipe there, I, I just I don't understand how like that would be awarded more than a near submission. What it reinforces is my belief that. You know, judges are so profoundly uneducated when it comes to functionality of fighting. And there's so much bias towards striking. And I think it's a cultural thing. Yeah. Because in the Anglo world, you know, people associate fighting with punches. Yes. Either because of movies, the influence of boxing, you know. Um, you know, for Americans, a lot of times in the UFC crowd, it's a, it's a bar fight. And you go to Japan, for example, and you see because everyone at some point has done judo or they are at least familiar with judo. And you can remember back in the days in Pride, someone would be going for an armbar. And you can hear the crowd go, oh, like they understood that as a near knockout in their eyes. Yeah. So there's an appreciation for the, the, the grappling art. And I think that grappling arts in general have always been a disadvantage in MMA because UFC as a business, it, ref, it, is a, it reflects the, the, the desires of the crowd who is paying to watch. So a lot of the MMA rules are not based off the functionality of fighting and it's it is meant to be as real as it gets, but in reality, it is reflecting the desire of the American crowd or the Anglo world, yes. the fans. And the fans want to see, it's, it's almost like overlaps with pro wrestling in a lot of ways where aesthetics take precedence over functionality, right, efficiency. And that's why I've always liked, liked Jap Japanese fans because they have so much more understanding of grappling. And I think that a lot of the rules of, for example, pride back in the day, if you're stalling on the ground, you get a yellow card. In the UFC, you get rewarded 
the judge, the Stand referee you stands back you back up. up. Yeah. It's like a complete different. I understand that. Okay, if I'm stalling, I am punished. In the UFC, you're rewarded for stalling, which to me sounds crazy, but like you see it all the time. The fans are just, they're just so used to it, they don't even realize it. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, fighting is all about finishing your opponent. So, barring that, damage would be the next thing I think is very important. And the other aspect is if the fight would have continued, who would look like who would win, right? Yeah. That's like, to me, that's the criteria that I think should be used. I don't think they really do that. Like you say, I've seen fights where a guy pulled guard and he did a good close guard game throwing elbows yeah. and the other guy on bottom never did anything. I'm yeah. like, he won the damage. Yeah. And I, mean, I mean, he was on bottom, but the other guy never threw the a punch. Damage is a criteria. Yeah, damage yeah. is a criteria. He won it from his back, you know? Especially sometimes you see people pull guard now the guy's on top of him the whole time, but not doing anything. Yeah. Well, the guy's winning this fight. You, you know, he's, he was being smart tactically because maybe he knew he was going to yeah. be outstruck and he was able to get the guy sucked into the ground and win the fight there, you know? But like you said, the bias is very strong. And like they just see someone on top and like, oh, he's winning this fight, you know, because he's on top and the yeah. guy's on bottom. It's like, no, there's more to it than that. You know, the takedowns are good and I, I come from a wrestling background, but not all takedowns are equal. Like, true. You especially know, in MMA, where like especially in MMA, yeah. sometimes you see people just like fall over. Like, yeah. well, that happened in the street. He really wasn't hurt. You know what I mean, like, yes, you, yes. you know, it, it was good. You did yeah. a technique that brought him to the mat. But like, should that be erase everything else that happened in the round? Yeah. Like, uh, no, I don't think so. Now, like you said, sometimes there's big throws. Yeah, okay, yeah, those yeah. count. Like you said, like, and near submissions, I'm gonna, I'm halfway in there. Like, someone, some submissions, I think, should definitely count. Like, if you see someone get cranked in the arm bar and like, God, fully hyperextended and pulls out, for sure he did damage there. You yes. Know what I mean? Whereas and sometimes a choke could look like it's in, but like, if you get out and, 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 and nothing guys, happens, it, 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 it be kind of like a punch that missed. Yes. It would be equivalent of someone, you know, someone lands a right hand, the guy does that right there with his head back. And that would be equivalent of like a Kimura that was never really there. Yeah. A near knockout to me is I drop you yeah. and you barely recover, right? The round ends, you know? That would be the in grappling with the equivalent of like you having her naked and time is up or the guy's fully extended. The way I say near submission is like you almost had the guy. Yeah. And for all practical purposes, you both almost ended the fight. Yeah. You know, whether one is more impressive than the other has to do once again with the desires of the crowd. And in my opinion, that shouldn't influence the rules. If MMA is meant to be the closest thing to reality, then we should exclude aesthetics and what the crowd wants and just stick to what is actually efficient for real combat. Which is, you know, not really. I mean, as a business, UFC kind of cares about that. That's their whole course, platform. Yeah. But let's be frank: the real important thing for them is ticket sales. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah. But uh, again, this all favors the game plan right now that Khabib is able to back to, to Khabib. I'm sorry. Back to Khabib. I, 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 I don't know if I. I think I do. Like, I think it's I'm the one who's always changing topics, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got just go on these tangents. No, no, they're, but they're relevant because it, it goes to. Uh, what he's able to do, which he's scoring takedowns, looks good, and he's doing good ground control. Now, one of the things I noticed, he doesn't often throw both hooks in a lot of times. But I've talked yeah. about this before, too. Like, he'll put one hook in and then control the yeah. hip, control the ankle, and ride. And it's kind of reminiscent to me of some other guys, like uh, Askren will do these yeah. type of rides where they use Merkel hooks or they just yeah. use, like, single leg rides. I And... GSP was doing this when he fought Nick Diaz, for example, and they, he never threw hooks in once, you know, because I, I, I find there's, there's a vulnerability when you put both hooks in, 
right? Because what I, I tell people, most dominant positions, you have full control of be, being able to disengage whenever you want. So like, if I see it from a street fight perspective, I'm fighting you, I got mount, I see your buddy coming, I can just pop off yes. and go. If I have back mount with both hooks and you're on top of me, I'm trying to choke you. You don't have that option. Your buddy comes, I'm screwed. You know, I'm going to get soccer kicked, yeah. right? So, like, that's the one drawback to me on the back. But the other thing is that your weight's on me. Yeah. So, technically, if you're a really big guy, I'm yeah. eating the damage of your weight. So, when you're able to ride like wrestlers do, they generally never have the guy on top of them. Yeah. They're riding from the top, maybe one leg hook or just controlling the hips, wrist control. I, you have the liberty of disengaging whenever you want, and you're getting weight pressure on I them. I totally agree with that. And I think that wrestlers are correct. And I think they're, you know, bringing their wrestling mindset where you don't be on bottom unless you have to. If you're going to go for a guillotine or a kill, sometimes you may have their naked choking up on your back. But, yeah. like, you shouldn't be on your back unless you have to. And I think Khabib brings this mindset. And I'm, I'm with it. Even, like, when I, I didn't start with wrestling, I actually never wrestled. I got my whatever wrestling I know I got from MMA. I had that mind. I started leaning towards that mindset because I'm thinking you have to start thinking how the judges think. If I end up this round on bottom, it doesn't matter. He just got out of her naked choke. I'm still in the round yes. on bottom. I'm going to lose this fight. I got to stay on top. And once you start looking for top position, you realize that having two hooks and is not always advantageous. In fact, a lot of times, I don't know what you call it in wrestling, but like I have one foot on the ground and I have what I call an anchor on the far ankle. Sometimes I grab my own ankle and I just like, I'd, I'd find positions to keep at least one foot on the ground at all times. Yeah. For exactly the reasons you're describing, you get to dominate top position, not fall bottom if you don't have to. And then you open up for punches and you end up with this sort of control off the cage a lot of times. Like similar to what Khabib does. And you don't necessarily compromise your dominant position in yeah. case something goes wrong. Whereas BJJ, as a self-defense art, and, you know, applying to MMA, a lot of times it is reckless because it goes all submission, submission, submission. Like, no, calm down, man. Yeah. <laughs> calm down. I'm all for the submission too. But like, you know, being on top in a fight is important. Yes. Like you would be losing a fight if you just like end up down bottom. And I teach my guys this. Like you don't go, if you do, for example, go for a submission at the end of the round, which is something everyone teaches. Yeah. Make sure that you end the round with the submission. <laughs> so let him get out of the submission and let this guy end up in the dominant spot because the judges are so stupid. That they're gonna see what they're gonna see that the guy ended the round on top, even though he just barely got out of submission. You know, they're not gonna reward you for almost finishing. They're gonna reward the guy for escaping and just happening to finishing on top, finishing the round on top. Correct. Yeah, like um, one of my guys, Jason, just defended his Titan FC title. He would, and he's a good rear naked choke guy. The guy he was fighting was defending his back really well, so he waited until there was about twenty seconds left on the clock. To go for an armbar. Yeah. Unfortunately for him, he finished the armbar. He yeah. got it. But like that's how we I would always play it as well. Because if you leave too much time at the clock and you go for an arm lock and you miss, now you've given the guy a minute to work on top. Yeah, which very which could sway the opinion very rapidly. Yeah. Or land some punishing blows, you know. I've done this once in wrestling. I made a big tactical error where I was wrestling this three time state champion, Ralph Everett. And uh it was a one zero match. I was down by one point, we were both on our feet. I was trying to score a takedown, and I thought I heard 10 seconds. I went, Hail Mary. I tried to do a yeah. lateral drop. Yeah. And then I missed, and I was on my back, and I was doing my neck bridge. I'm like, oh, well, time's almost up. And then I heard 40 seconds. I was like, what the hell? I have 40. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, crap. Now you can't get pinned. I'm like, ah, I'm trying to turn yeah. out. Like, dude, I totally blew it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I left too much time on the clock, you know? So, yeah. 
having that awareness again that's when a coach is helpful and when they can tell you hey you know the time is you know like we it does you know because once again going back to combat time is not realistic because in real combat you don't know if the fight's going to take 20 seconds or five minutes or an hour yeah reality of real fighting to me tells me that like street fights are very short yeah 30 seconds super short like everyone goes oh no time limit is real like no it's not i've never seen a a a fight there's like no time limit someone's gonna come in and stop or someone's gonna get knocked out or something there's no way it's gonna go there's also always a boundary yeah. Nobody fights in football fields that are like miles No, there's always stuff in the way, man. It's <laughs> yeah. normally at a bar or a nightclub. That's what drives me crazy. I'm like, I'm such, I got such a peeve of mind, like the whole like self-defense thing. Like, these people teaching self-defense. I'm like, you've never been to a fight, have you? Have no idea what happens in a real fight. Like you get like all open mat area. It's a mat comfortable. You can like, even BJJ is like some of the most like it's supposed to be this amazing form of self-defense. And some of the stuff I I, I see these people talking about, I'm like that is just a, this controlled scenario that only exists in your mind, man. Like, that doesn't happen in the real world. Yeah. You know? So I advise people to be careful with what is being taught as self-defense out there, even in BJJ gyms. And I'll, I see this all the time. I'm looking at that, and I'm going, I would never teach that. You know? Yeah. I think it's – if you're training mixed martial arts, it's pretty much the closest to the best self-defense yeah. you can really 100%. do. Yeah, 100%. You know, like, people always say, oh – uh, I can bite your nuts if you do a triangle. Oh, like, come on! <laughs> First of all, you can't because your head's over the groin. Yeah. Right, but do you really <laughs> want to do that? Is the question. What are these thoughts, man? Like, you know, but the first people, thing you think about is biting someone's nuts. No, what people are like, oh, you know, you do an arm bar, I'm gonna bite your calf or, or whatever. You know, it's like the the moment you put your energy in that, your your arm's gonna get snapped. And bite then my leg, okay. Bones. Now you're dead. I'm choking you out. Exactly. Like, you're you're going to sleep. You know, like yeah. these type of things. Like, I I. In general, I want less rules in MMA. Like yeah. I hate the no downed kicks. Yeah. To me, that's such a huge game changer. Yeah. Particularly with, um, you know, when another thing that favors somebody like Khabib, because old school, you didn't see people who would just turtle off the get go right away. They would always go to their back first, yeah. right? Like if I was out striking you, you would pull, you know, to a guard of some form. You wouldn't just fall to your force because that would just sucker kick the ever-loving crap out of you, you know what I mean? Uh, I remember the fight with Brad Kohler, he got soccer kicked by Babalu. Yeah. Just <laughs> knocked his head off. You know, so like, it was very rare where people would just stay on their fours. People would yeah. roll to their fours and then move yeah. around. They wouldn't just camp out there. Like, there was an era in the UFC where people would put the hand, finger on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then they got rid of that. Yeah. That you know, dumb. it was retarded. You know what I mean? It's like, no, that's not realistic. And you're yeah. making this, like, uh, a sport MMA now yeah. versus not being... You know, close to fighting. Close to fighting, yeah. You know, so, uh, yeah, um, but, you know, the, the the cheap stuff, like the eye gouging, and well, even though it's happening so often now. Yeah, people get eye poked all the time. Yeah. All the time, man. Yeah. They need to put some little goggles on people. Yeah, man, like, there's, there's a lot of, like, I, I, I lean towards, like, what? how can we make this as realistic as possible? Um, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, as an organization, like, I think, you know, they. I think for the most part they do a good job. I think it's as, like I said, it's the best form of combat ever devised. But like some stuff to me, like the soccer kicks, I'm with you. You know, one that would change things dramatically. I think would be huge. And I don't understand why it's illegal. I've never heard a good argument. Why can't the guy in guard kick the guy that's inside his guard? Yeah, I don't. I don't yeah. get that either. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be as strong as a standing kick. So yeah. if, if 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 it being too violent is your argument. Oh, the, the kick, well, the standing kick is way stronger than when it comes from the bottom. Yeah, and especially like, oh, if I'm standing, you can kick me. 
Yeah. No, but if I'm on my knee, you can't. Why not? That I, doesn't I, make sense because uh, if you think about it, the range, it's going to make it less yeah, powerful yeah. because I'm too close to your yes, kick. Yes. You know what I mean? Like uh, my leg's yes. going to be halfway bent. Oh. When you're standing, like I've been soccer kicked, I mean, uh, up kicked in an MMA fight. That hurts. Yeah. I remember that was the one time but I got. there's range. Because there's right, range. Yeah. I was, it was in the, my Costa Rica fight. Big dude, he, he reached up, pow! I was like, okay, I gotta it's get back KO down. Right there, man. It's <laughs> yeah, a scary kick. I, yeah. Another one of those, I'd be done. You know what I mean? But like on the ground, I wouldn't be as worried because like I'm too close. Yeah, you're gonna and, you're gonna hurt me, but I, not like. I think it would know. change things dramatically because I would throw like side kicks from close guard. I always wanted to do that, hold the wrist and side kick people and start up kicking like little short up kicks, and then and then the the, the judges go because I've had this conversation with judges before and they go, oh, you can't kick when on the ground. I'm like, why not? And they come up with something. You know when people, like, they don't have an answer, yeah. but they don't want to admit that they don't have an answer? So they'll go on these, like, like these rants about, like, you know, they're, they're trying to justify without giving you a good justification. They don't have an answer. It, there's no good reason why up kicks from, with, the, with, the ground, with the opponent on his knees should be illegal. I think that that would make fight very different for the bottom player. Yeah. Because if I were in guard and I were able to kick my opponent in my guard, maybe I wouldn't be knocking him out, but, man, I'd be doing some damage. Yeah. I'd be mean, like throwing some head kicks from the bottom. No, I, I think that, and I think likewise, guy on top should be able to kick knee to head. It, it would make side control a very powerful position, which currently right now it's kind of not. And yeah. Like, I mean, you got little stuffy elbows and stuff, but it, but when you can knee someone in the head on side mount, now it's very dangerous. I, I teach more north south. Stuff. It becomes really dangerous. Deadly. Yeah. Yeah. I and I, I think that you still probably get less power out of that than you do when you're standing. Yeah. It's funny though. Like they have these criteria. Like one of them, like local event here in Vegas, like the amateur fights, they don't allow footlocks. Yeah. Like you can shin someone in the in the, in the fa- across his face. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. And then, but oh, a footlock, no, that's too dangerous. I remember one time I was fighting in Texas and I had tape around my ankle and they didn't let me wear the tape. And I'm like, I had a bad ankle. I'm yeah. not, like, it wasn't like you, they, they tape your hands with tape, it can make them solid. Yeah, I get cast, that, right? yeah, but, yeah. yeah. But it was just like, like one layer of tape. I'm like, oh no, because this is what he told me. Your opponent can cut his eye on the tape. Oh, my God. And I'm like, so I can shin him in the eye. I can knee him in the face, and that's all good. But the tape is the real problem. Like, some of their, their the, the thought process a lot of these promoters, commissioners have behind rules are just so outlandish yeah, to me. It's, it's not like well thought out. No, and they, they don't have experience. That's why. Like, fighters would never make these rules. Yeah. If they had fighters making rules in jiu-jitsu and MMA, I'm convinced the systems would be very different. But they normally have people with no background, their fans basically, making up rules. They just don't understand what's dangerous and what's not. We, I had a guy once fought amateur. Oh, poor, poor dude. You know, in Florida at the time, they had uh, 10 counts for amateur MMA, which doesn't make any sense. But this guy... I, I don't even know how you do, how do you do that, 10 count. Like, you stop the fight? They stop like the fight, they give them a 10 count, and then they restart the fight. And this is supposed to be for safety. I'm like, so basically, the guy is about to get knocked out. You just offer a concussion. And then you let him fight again. Yeah. I'm like, oh. And the guy, he fought, man, he was a ringer. The kid was a stud. And the, the, the guy I was coaching wasn't <laughs> at that level. He got dropped right away, over him, right? Boom. Guy swarmed him. And then, whoop, 10 count. And I'm like, oh, okay. Again, guy takes him down. From the half guard, starts body shotting him. Nasty. 10 count. So at this point, he's got a, probably a mild concussion, got bruised ribs. They start him up again. 
I'm like, this poor kid just needs to be finished. <laughs> no, it's because it's tough. It's like, no, stop. Mercy on me, you. you know. <laughs> it's so it's so true, man. Because, and once again, it's the, 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 look at their arguments. They don't even think this through. They go, it's for their safety. I'm like, you realize what's happening? Here. Look, you're getting this, this guy's like half dead. Yeah. He just happens to stand back this up. It's tough, you know. But like, man, like he wants out. Like, please <laughs> give him way out. You give know? him a way out. You know. Oh man, like I, I. I say this all the time, and like the people who make rules just don't understand. For the most part, they don't understand fighting. It blows my mind. But um, yeah, Dave, one final, one final. I think we've, you know we're we're running just over past yeah, an yeah, hour yeah. now. I want to pick your brain. One more thing. So, what do you think? Okay, so we have a Khabib. We kind of saw like that. Just going back to that, like I want to talk about that that grappling in MMA, right? Because it was for a minute there, all grappling is dead in MMA. Or BJJ is dead in MMA. Like I, I thought that was a stupid thing to yeah. say. I see a submission in every UFC, and even if you say, "Oh, it's not BJJ," well, it's kind of. It's the same style. I, I look at. By the way, I look at submission grappling, jujitsu, samba. It's all the same shit, really, yeah. man. It's like different rules, but it's basically grab the guy and put him away. We're you doing know? joint locks and submission holds. It's yeah. there are way yeah. too many similarities for you to go like, "Oh, they're completely different." No, they're not. It's just because people focus on the differences, not on the similarities, right? Yeah. Um, but we've seen a comeback with you know guys like even like Damian Maya. I feel like he, he crossed that bridge because his wrestling got so good. It was he's unusually good at wrestling for a jiu-jitsu guy. Yes, even yeah. though his wrestling was like not collegiate wrestling. No, it was like no. you know. But neither was GSP. GSP was what was GSP great at with his wrestling? It wasn't wrestling per se. It was his timing from striking into wrestling. Yeah. That's where he excelled. If you put him in wrestling mats with. With guy like Ben Askren, like he get demolished. I mean, I imagine, I, I, you know, I would like, think, but you never know. You never know. I guess. <laughs> but like, but like, in, in, in competition, yeah. there's no way he'd hang. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, he's not going to the Olympics and no, no, back. neither was Damian Maya. Like, yeah. not a chance, right? But like, they've managed to create a wrestling style that fits him. And maybe in just peace case, it was like transitioning the timing so well from striking into takedowns. Yeah. And in Damien's case, like he just liked the, the goofiest stuff that's not supposed to work, like as in like pulling half guard and coming back up to a single. Yeah. And he and he's done it to me. Like he's mastered that to the point where I think people underestimate like how strong that half guard is to come back up. Yeah. And he actually got that from Lucas Leite. Lucas Leite like the half yeah, yeah, guard. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. The, that's where he came from. But it works so well in MMA, man. And I, he, he's the kind of guy that made that. He was making that bridge right between the grappling styles. And I think Khabib is main reason why he's so dominant is because he has made that transition into striking with wrestling with very dominant ground not bs ground yeah like the old school ground and pound inside closed guard doing this right nothing's happening they're like oh he's killing him like nothing's happening like i don't think closed guard is that great of a ground and pound position personally i think it's very overrated like half the time you have your head down you're doing this right here the only KOs you see from close guard was the guy on the bottom is already rocked. He got yeah. rocked on his feet, and then they got finished on the ground. But KOs that started in close guard, I very rarely it, see them. It's rare because, I mean, one, it's hard to get the same type of power you can from your feet. Yeah. You know what I mean? You just don't have it there. But like anything, if you hit someone enough, you will put them out. It's yeah. like, like all shaking baby syndrome. Yeah. You know, like if I just keep hitting you with little yeah. shots, I'll eventually put you away, you yeah. know? So, like, for the most part, you usually have a hard time getting that type of knockout power from a closed guard, especially yeah. when the guy can pull you pull in you whenever in, yeah. he wants. And they have hands, so they can yeah. block and, and interrupt punches. You end up with, like, these, like, little I'm scoring points kind of punches. They're yeah. not really doing any damage. Like, even in Ukraine, like, sometimes you put small gloves on yeah. and have these guys already hit me. Like, they never got hit hard from inside closed guard. I'm always, like, blocking, catching. And plus, when the threat from attacking from the bottom is there, then these guys are, like, far more hesitant about what they do. 
So yeah. like, I think it's very overrated. But guys like Khabib, what they do is he moves forward. He wants to get to that half guard. He will pass. He will let you turtle so he can get to the position he really wants, right? And that's an aggressive grappling style that I always believe was going to be – I think that's the most dominant style you can have. Solid hands, good striker, right? But really striking into his wrestling. His wrestling is where he excels. And his ground game is just very aggressive. Not prioritizing control. He's not like, I mean, if you, I think if you put Khabib in like ADCC, I don't think he'd win a single match. You know, I don't think he stands a chance. Like against like the high level rappers, but like his style for MMA is, I, I think he's probably my favorite fighter of all time. You know, and um, for a number of reasons, I love I love Khabib because like I, I like the, I think what he did that the whole episode with McGregor, I admire him so much more after the fight, because not because he jumped out of the cage, but he kept his cool. Up to that point, oh, how much anger was built inside that guy, and he he played it cool. He just like bottled those emotions, like this guy, this motherfucker. And then when he finally beat him, that's when he he couldn't hold it anymore. He just yeah, let he it exploded. out. He exploded. But I admire not the fact that he exploded. He could have kept that cool a little bit longer. But the fact that up to that fight, he never let Connor get into his head. And then when Dana wanted to fire Zabaida, he's like, "If you fire him, you're gonna have to fire me too." That's pretty badass, man. I, I look up at these things. I'm going, that's legit. Like, there's not a lot of that going on in the world anymore. And he's man. very principled. So, yes, for that, yes. you know, I mean, I don't agree with getting, you know, losing your cool and all that. But at, at the very least, he's consistent. Yes. And the thing was, I don't believe he was putting an act on either. No, he's, like, he's not. He's, yeah. he, that's him. He's yeah. not putting an act. Yeah, some yeah. people, you know, a lot of people put acts on, you know, when they're I think fighting. Connor probably puts an act on because yeah. he sells tickets. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. he's driven by the, the need for fame the and money, attention. Yeah, all that. Like, but you got guys like Colby who are clearly putting an act on it. Yeah. It surprises me that people buy the act. I'm like, it's such pro, a... It's pro wrestling. It's pro yeah. wrestling yeah. and it's... It's it's so hacky, but it's working. So you know, I mean, he's making he's writing his own meal tickets. It's good for him, you know. But, but like, God, someone like Khabib is pretty much exactly what you see. And I I, I love the fact that he's principled because you know me, like I, I'm big on these things. These things to me are as important and as, as as his skills. You know, like the fact that he's because when Connor insults his family, his religion, his ethnicity, his father. I mean, he insulted yeah. every dude. Like, okay. Connor's thinking, I'm just trying to promote the fight. Khabib is not thinking that. He's thinking, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> you yeah. insult my family. Like, they take that stuff in a different way, whereas, like, we don't understand that way. I'm, I'm more like him in the sense where, like, it's, you know, you, you cross that line, man. It's, it's not just show business anymore, man. Like, you, you know. Yeah, you, and you, a lot you, of people don't You, you see, lost respect. Yeah. And there's, like, this is the respect that we've lost. It's, like, you don't talk like that about anyone. Especially not a fighter that you're, you know, you should, there should be a, 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 a code there, a moral code that you should follow of respect. And, like, these guys lost that completely. And I think Khabib's one of the few guys out there who keeps that as part of his, you know, moral matrix. And I, I admire that as much as his skills. Even he, though, like... You could see what yeah. he did with the, the difference, the contrast when he fought Dustin yeah. Poirier. He took, he wore Dustin's shirt... And then he said he was going to sell it for charity. And it was uh, Dustin Poirier was promoting a charity. He was going to give that money to the charity. So that's a very classy thing to do, right? You know, it's, and it's not an act. I truly believe yeah. he, he does that as a guy. I think he's probably like a legit solid guy. Yeah, but like, you can tell he's the type of guy that he gives respect, but he also wants it back. You know, yeah. If you're not going to give it back, then you're going to yeah. feel the wrath. You know? yeah. so like, <laughs> I think he's like old school in the sense where it's like, 
he has that that he's very how can I describe this? I, you you have that that the honor. He's the kind of guy like mm-hmm. it's a handshake. Like a handshake yeah. means something. Yeah, like, exactly. it's your word, you know. Like whereas I feel like most of these days, like a handshake means like absolutely nothing to anyone, you know. Like a guy like him, it means something. So I, I admire that. But very dominant guy. I have a guy that's going to beat him in a few years. We're working on it. Nice, nice. Two, three more years, and we got him. But uh, because he's a better grappler, because he's a better grappler, you know, and, and I truly believe that. But uh, so, <laughs> you know, we're working on it. Uh, no, but yeah, I think that type of game, like you know, whenever people think, oh, something's dead, I'm like, yeah. that's when it's going to start coming. Back, yeah. Right? It's like this old saying, like when your barber starts giving you stock tips. Yeah. You already know the ship sailed. Yeah, right? yeah. It's like, that was Dave giving me point, uh, uh, advice on Bitcoin. By the way, dude, I I'm the worst man. I should never invest in anything. I'm the worst in the world. But like Dave was like, they talk about Bitcoin. I should probably buy some. Like, oh, I buy was like eighteen thousand dollars, and it crashes the next day. It's like story of my life. Yeah, a bit late at that party. Yeah, that's uh, why you gotta be careful. But like when people are saying, "Oh, gra- grappling is gone," right now, like it's gonna be yeah. striking back. Like, no, it's gonna come back. It's like everything. There's pendulums. It swings yes, one way, yes, it comes back yes. the other way. Like everybody, yeah, I agree. Uh, like I think we were talking the other day. Like Keenan was saying, "Oh, the nogi game is imploding," essentially implying that the set of techniques are being reduced yeah. to just a few. You know, like no, it, I mean, like I, leg I, locks I, and wrestling. I think it, it's just a sway. Like right now. The leg lock offense is ahead of the defense, yeah. right? So, like, yeah, people are catching a lot, a lot of people. But yes. eventually, defense is going to step up and kind of yeah. negate the leg locks, and then it's going to become it, something else. It is such a pendulum because, like, for example, like passing on your knees, which is something I don't know how to do. That's how old school it is because I'm considered old school. I'm, like, 38, and I don't know how to pass on my knees because when I started training, people weren't doing that anymore. Yeah. But it's making a comeback because – like it's the leg lock games get shut off a lot. It's hard to get underneath people. And that single exit people want something. You're on your knees. It's hard to get underneath people. So a lot of people are starting to pass more like that. So it is a a, a pendulum. And like even like Kimura, which is something like as old school as it gets. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at classical Greece, and you have I have pictures of like these guys yeah. playing Kimuras, but it's made a comeback in a lot of ways because people were not exploring how much they could do yeah. with that Kimura, right? Yeah. Um, there's a list of everything, man. Yeah, like, even I, with the I, leg locks itself. Like, there was a period, like, when I started doing them, like, 1999, 2000, where heel hooks were working great. And then around, like, at least what I could trace, like, around 2006, 2007, they start becoming a factor. Yeah. Because the regular Ashigurami heel hook, yeah. and, and you know, like, everybody got it, right? Like, we know how to defend this. And then 50-50 came in and started changing things, and then it faded away. Like, yeah. 50-50 now is just, like, a stalling position. Yeah. But then they came now with the saddle, which is old, but it was brought back in, yeah. and now it's killing it. But like I, I feel like at a certain point, people will figure it out, and then they're gonna move into something else. You know? Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So like I, so like I never, I, I tell people not to get caught up with fashion. If, if anything, you should try to think outside the box and do what no one is doing, because a lot of people go, "I'm gonna do what everyone else is doing." That means you're just following the barber's advice. You yes. know, what you should be doing is what is it that is highly efficient that no one is thinking about doing? I remember, like, there were competitors that were, like, made a, like, a few of them, like, for a minute, they're doing it like this choke. You know, and I started doing it for a minute, too, and I was killing people with it because no one cared about this choke anymore. Like, some of my blue belts, purple belts, I probably never seen anyone apply that, oh, that, I didn't even know that choke existed, you know, because, like, some schools don't even teach it anymore, right? So it's basic as it gets, like, the cross collar choke, but it is, uh, um, dude, it's there. 
Like, I, I, I'm only the opinion. I don't set a hierarchy so much as, like, all oh, this position is better than that one. I think you have the top ones. Like, arm bar and rear naked are never going to go away. Yeah. But other than that, man, like, you got to be careful when you, like, you get too much into these trends because they actually may cause you, like, they're not, you're not going to be ahead of the game if you're just following trends is what yeah. I'm saying. You're always going to be behind what everyone else is doing. Yeah, you need to be thinking, like you said, ahead of the curve. Yeah. What are people not doing, yeah. you know, and figure out. So people will follow your trend, yeah. right? Not you following them. We're talking high-level grappling here, guys. If you're a beginner, like, this, you <laughs> skip that. Just stick to your, just listen to your coach. Okay? Stick to the basics. Yeah. They don't, they, you, white belts are like, oh, what's that 50-50 for? I'm like, mm, we'll get there. Curl, close guard first. One yeah, time, yeah, you know? yeah. One thing at a time. But uh, at least for, for right now, it looks like, like I said, the grappling is starting to make a way back in. I like yeah. that to yeah. me. But uh, like you said, for how long? Like the next fight they're trying to put him up against is Tony Ferguson, which I think is a very interesting fight for Khabib because he's another strong grappler, and he hasn't lost since I think they said like two thousand something or other. Like, yeah. it's just he gets injured and yeah. gets headlined. So that's a very interesting fight. Um, hopefully, I, it happens because apparently I agree. they tried to make it happen four times already, and it's fallen through four times. So it's definitely I a lot of bad luck. Still got my money on. Khabib, but I think it will be a, definitely a good test. You know, uh, definitely he's one of the better grapplers in the division, that's for sure. Yeah, and he's yeah. just a wild man. Yeah, you know, like he rehabbed his knee, like in eight weeks or something like that. Yeah, which me, I'm, I'm like, like yeah. nine months in, and yeah, I'm feeling pretty good now. Yeah. But I'm like, I wouldn't fight right now. Yeah, <laughs> you no, know, so. I, yeah, he's probably got like, yeah, he's probably Wolverine. <laughs> Seriously, blood, you know, guys are savage. So, but, um, anyway, Dave, I think that's it, man. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed as well. We will do this again. Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah, guys, uh, you know, this is something me and Dave just started. So we always ask, uh, you know, people to help spread the word. You know, post it on your Facebook, on your Instagram. Post a link. Subscribe on iTunes. And, and we're on uh, the Google Play and on Podbean. If you go to the website, breakingtheguard.com, it has the links for all the different places you know so if you want to subscribe on youtube or whatever you can do it from there all right thank you guys thanks for listening and we'll see you guys next time thank you for tuning in to the podcast i hope you enjoyed the conversation i know i did with rob and if you haven't already make sure that you subscribe to our channel we are on a bunch of platforms whether you're on itunes google play spotify or podbean or youtube you can subscribe to us just visit our website breakingtheguard.com to links to all the different platforms so you can subscribe and stay up to date with our latest podcasts and make sure you also follow us on social media we are on facebook and instagram as breaking the guard and on twitter we're just breaking guard a final word from our sponsor black belt psychology black belt psychology is a course that my brother came up with that is really phenomenal. It talks about the mindset that it takes to become a fighter. And it's actually a required reading for anybody in my school who's going to be in our amateur or professional fight team. And I attribute the mindset that my brother talks there to the one that I've used in competition and have gained such great results from. It really is the most neglected part of the game. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're not one of those people that doesn't take the mental game seriously. 
And if you ever wonder, like, how could I learn all the different parts of the mind game of how, how to prepare, how to warm up, you know, how to get yourself psyched, break the black belt psychology course is the ultimate way of doing that. I know I've read it several times and it's available in both DVD and online streaming formats. Uh, you can uh, access them by visiting the website blackbeltpsychology.com. Again, that's blackbeltpsychology.com. I can't st- state it enough how important this is because you could know all the cool moves and have great conditioning and be in peak physical shape. But if your mental game is not set, you will not go far. And I can tell you, and you've, if you've been listening to the podcast, me and Rob have talked about many times how there's people who are killers in the gym, but then they just fall apart in competition. And the only reason is their mind game is not prepared, right? So having a strong mental game is important, particularly if you're a competitor. You know, I can't stress enough. Check out this course. Again, it's blackbeltpsychology.com. It's really helpful. I know a lot of people have actually come to me and my brother and told me how much it's helped them. Even UFC fighters like Tom Lawler, who credited my brother with one of his wins after going over he had a little mini crisis and my brother talked him through it with the concepts of black belt psychology. So go again, check it out at blackbeltpsychology.com.